welcome back to the Med School Tutors Podcast, your resource for high-yield tips and proven guidance to help reduce stress and give you tangible tools for success from pre-med through residency and the boards. Let's dive in. Hey, good evening, everyone. Welcome to our webinar tonight, uh, Tackling the USMLE Step 3. My name is Mike Stevens. I am a second year dermatology resident. I've been with MST for about two years now and uh, super thrilled to be talking to y'all tonight about uh, kind of some perspectives and tips and strategies on approaching this. I'm thrilled to be joined tonight by my co-host Annette. Annette, I'll let you introduce yourself. Hi everyone, I'm Annette. I'm a second year pediatric resident. Um, I've been working with MST since 2017. I have done tutoring and I've been doing a lot of residency advising now. And of course, hosting webinars with Mike a lot. <laughs> All right, we'll kick it off with just a little bit of a, a bigger picture of the format of step three and what, you'll ex what you should expect on this exam. And then dive a little bit more into how you should go about studying for it, scheduling the tests, scheduling your studying, and kind of all of the ins and outs that go into that. One of the unique aspects of step three is that there is the second day, half of which is devoted to the CCS cases, which are a little bit different from what you might have experienced on step one or step two. And, and as a result of that, come with a lot of, again, strategies that you can use to kind of maximize how you do on these sections. And one of our big goals tonight is going to be to help you kind of figure out how to go about doing that. I think, you know, practice will make perfect. And, and I think that the, the majority of what we're going to discuss is actually going to be in the form of doing sample cases with you all so that you can see how we think about things and how we go about approaching it. And then one of my personal favorite parts of the webinar is we'll wrap up with a question and answer session. So and so with that, I'll turn things over to Annette and, um, and ask, what, what do you think we should expect from the two test days for step three? Okay, so Mike, you already kind of mentioned that it's very different from all the other step exams that we've ever taken. Um, for starters, it's two days instead of one, and they're both very long days. Uh, I think I got out at 4.30 on both days. Um, the second day felt a little bit shorter, but it wasn't. So both very long days, you could schedule them any way you want. So some students will um, choose to take it back to back and others will have a weekend or a week or four days um, in between exams. I personally recommend at least giving yourself one or two days. That's helpful. Um, I don't know, Mike, do you have a different opinion about that? I agree 100%. I went back to back and I have to tell you, it was, if I could go back and do it again, I would have done things differently. It's nice to give yourself a little bit of breathing room in between the two because they are exhausting. And so I was in residency when I took this exam. So I requested a weekend off and then I requested my Friday and Monday off and mm -hmm. Friday I took my first part and then I had the weekend to study. And then I had, I took the second part on Monday and it was great because then I can really focus on the cases. So day one is what you think about with your other step exams all multiple choice questions, a lot of biostats, a lot of heavy um, medical, like basic medical principles, diagnosing patients, um, that's day one. And then day two is kind of a mixture between uh, multiple choice and these CCS cases. And the beginning part is the multiple choice. And then towards the afternoon, that's when you start the cases. And so it's nice to have that weekend or those few days to kind of focus in on the cases. Um, 
And then also to have the days before leading up to the first part of the exam to focus on biostats because biostats tends to be mainly on the day, first day. Uh, you could talk to different students and they're gonna tell you that, oh, day two was really tough or day one was really tough. I personally think they were very similar. Maybe day two is a little bit um, better for me, but it's anyone will tell you, give you a different answer. Um, so study really hard um, for day one, like the multiple choice, but then more clinical cases for day two. Anything you wanna add? I, I would, that was, I think that is exactly how I think about it. And and I will we'll cover this as we go and, and talk about it some more, but just because the point I think can't be stated enough, biostats and ethics are so, so important on this test. And especially what you're going to experience on day one, it's going to be very, very biostats heavy. And so it's, it's crucial that you feel comfortable with basic principles of things like diagnostic tests, sensitivity, specificity, errors, study designs, all of those things you have to have like the back of your hand. Um, and then the day two multiple choice, just like Annette said, is going to be very much kind of in lockstep with what you've experienced before, kind of the step two style format of questions. And, you know, I think that there's kind of an adage that might have been from previous times of two months for step one, two weeks for step two, number two pencil for step three. And, and I think if there's one thing that we can drive home this evening, it's probably to let that go. And, and the reason why is you really shouldn't underestimate this exam. It is different. It is tests different things. The structure is not similar to ones that you've, you know, what you've done before. And so you can set yourself up for success by number one, giving yourself enough time. Don't walk into this completely unaware of what you're going to have to do. Um, and, and, you know, that, that specific length of time, there isn't like a one size fits all of like, you know, I, I can't, it just depends on your specific scenario, whether, you know, two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks, it just depends. Um, it also is dependent on your schedule too, what you're able to carve out because as an intern or as a resident, you know, you have to balance your service commitments and schedule in the hospital with how you're going to schedule the exam. Uh, one aspect of this, as we've talked about, is the CCS cases and getting used to that. And so it's more than just doing multiple choice questions or UWorld like you might have done in the past. There's going to be a component of also getting comfortable with the, with the premium software and doing the CCS cases. I always sound, whenever I'm doing sessions with students, I'm, I'm such a broken record and just continuously talk about the importance of practice questions. That's not going to change for this exam. At the end of the day, you know, the, the best way to prepare is going to be just to do as many questions as you can. And then just to drive home the point one more time amongst many, make sure you know that you make sure you know the biostats. And that can be by doing the biostats review that UWorld has, by pulling down specific biostats questions. Um, finding other resources that are available to review it. And then also, you know, there's a tendency to want to avoid things you don't like or don't feel comfortable with. You know, if there's that, if like neuro just isn't your thing, it is to your advantage to kind of grin and bear it a little bit and just do the neuro, get comfortable with it. Focus on things that you don't feel comfortable. So if you're a, if you're a medicine resident, maybe focus on pediatrics or surgery, OBGYN. If you're a surgery resident, maybe focus a little bit more on psych and obstetrics, things that you wouldn't necessarily do as much of. And anything else, any other kind of tips or tricks that, that you think about? Well, I would just say one recommendation is definitely at least minimum, you should try to get through the entire URL QBank once mm -hmm. and to take the practice test. And I know a lot of co-residents who don't finish the bank and they 
don't do the practice test. And these, a lot of them will still pass. Most of them obviously pass, um, but they don't necessarily live up to their potential. And I always say that even though it doesn't matter, it's, this is what we hear all the time in residency. Oh, step three doesn't matter. You just have to pass. But I always say, why, why doesn't it matter? Why don't you use it to your advantage? Because if you're applying for fellowship and you do well in this exam, then it's going to look good for you. And it's going to be something that's a positive thing on your application. So I always say, live up to your potential, study, um, and do as best as you can. And it will also give you a new sense of confidence in residency too. And that some of you I'm sure are going to take it before residency. Uh, but I know that when I took it, it was at the end of intern year and I just gained this new um, sense of confidence after studying for step three and like relearning all the material and then just had it being tackled intern year and then doing well on this exam. It just, it was like a great way to start off um, second year. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. All right, how do you think about the timeline that you typically approach for preparing for the test? So uh, like we kind of mentioned, you want to have like some kind of schedule, right? We want to be realistic about when we're going to take the exam. So Mike, you already said, you know, it's, it's going to be very dependent on what your schedule is. And actually, before we jump into the slide, why don't you guys tell us in the chat who is taking this exam during residency and who's planning on taking this exam before residency starts? Because that kind of is going to have and kind of, okay, before, before, before residency. Okay. So, and then during residency. So if you're taking it before residency, your schedule is going to be a little bit different. You're going to have more time to study. You're going to need more time to study because uh, you're going to have to get familiar with um, like management that you might not, that you would be really familiar with during residency. But when you're in residency, then you have the, like you have to tackle finding the right time to take it, being able to take time off, um, studying during residency in between like possibly ICU blocks or inpatient wards, um, things like that. So you have to be uh, realistic with what you have and pick a time that you know is gonna work. Uh, For us, I took in the easiest rotation that we have in our second year, and most of us take it in second year because intern year is very um, loaded with inpatient wards. Um, So find either you know you have a bunch of time off that you can study or find a rotation that you know is more outpatient focused uh, that you will have time to study. And then also follow, make sure that block that you take it in, make sure the blocks leading up to it are a little bit more relaxed too, so you can study through that. Um, If you're taking it during residency, give yourself several months to study. If you're taking it before residency and you have time off, then you can do kind of what you did for step one and step two, six weeks and go for it. But be realistic. Um, And then definitely if you're in residency, you're not going to be able to study every single day. So take that into consideration as well. And then like we mentioned already, we want to take practice tests. You want to finish the bank and you want to take the practice tests, at least the UWorld self-assessments. Anything you want to add? It's a little bit of a temptation to just, you know, you have your your certain uh, eligibility period of when you can schedule the exam and it can feel like a lot of time. Having a specific test date in mind really helps you 
it forces you to have a schedule and stick to something on a day-by-day basis so that you don't you know, necessarily fall behind. Having an open-ended test date, what can end up happening is it just takes a little bit of the pressure off of the day-by-day studying and to that, and then it can end up causing the exam to get pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. So I really do encourage students I'm working with to, to as soon as they have their permit, to go ahead and have something on the books. You can reschedule. If you're a month in advance, there's no penalty whatsoever to rescheduling. And and then to that end, though, it just it has something on the horizon, a light at the end of the tunnel, if you will, that you can work towards. Um, all right, so just to give you guys a little bit of an example of a study schedule, you're going to find that the UWorld question bank for step three is a little bit smaller than it is compared to the other exams. So you're looking at about 1,500 to 1,600 questions altogether. And and then there's also the CCS cases that we'll talk about. And so again, at the end of the day, the most important thing is going to be getting through as many of the questions as you can. And and so you're going to have to find the balance that works. Again, if you're studying during a period where you're working a little bit harder, then you may have to adjust the volume that you do each day accordingly. But in a perfect world, if you have, for example, an amp, like a a month long ambulatory block or a vacation into an ambulatory block or elective or something like that, where you have like a four month stretch, this is kind of what we would typically recommend of trying to do um, about 300 to 400 new world questions a day and slowly building in the CCS cases as you go. The uh, actual cases themselves, um, there's a lot of different ways to go about doing it. There's, um, UWorld has interactive cases and printable cases that you can use. That um, the, the most important thing from the interactive cases is making sure you get comfortable with the interface. It's in some way kind of like a unique EMR that you have to develop a customization to. Um, the printable cases are a little bit harder to, they just take away the, the active component of it and become a little bit more passive and they don't help you get engaged in the actual um, premium software. And then um, and then for, for, it, for more review beyond that, there's another website called ccscases.com that we'll talk about in a little bit that helps you get a better sense of an objectively how you're doing with the cases. Long story short, um, make sure that you're maintaining a good pace through those as you're wrapping up the UWorld questions. And then in the days and, and or week leading up to the exam, really run through the high yield stuff, basic kind of management questions of chest pain, abdominal pain, shortness of breath that are you're almost guaranteed to see on this test. And that's so how do you think about this? What are some tips that you have for CCS cases and how you go about doing them? Um, so I kind of like how the study schedule did touch base to like start the CCS cases later. So you kind of mentioned that already. That's what I recommend. Um, I think that's um, good. You want to start off with a foundation and then you want to kind of gradually um, learn the CCS. So start off doing tackling the UWorld and then at the end, start bringing at the end, as in like the last few weeks or the last few months, depending on how much time you're giving yourself to start slowly introducing cases. Um, You don't want to leave it all towards the very end because then you'll get overwhelmed and you want to familiarize yourself with this software. It's very important. Um, So you want to start it early, but not super early. Um, One to two cases a day, I think is a great goal. It's a great way to kind of change up your study schedule because you'll do, I don't know, 30, 40 questions. And then you realize you have another 20, but you're kind of feeling a little burnt out. So it's kind of nice to, you know, um, split things up a little bit. 
And I found the cases to be kind of enjoyable, especially it was like a really nice break um, from the URL questions. So definitely start early, not too early and do a little bit every day. Um, and then towards the end, if you have those two days between your test or one to three days, then you can kind of repeat questions, but at least try to get through all the CCS cases on ccscases.com. I highly, highly recommend purchasing this because it is like the software and it helps you get familiar with the software. One thing to be um, mindful of is that if you have a really speedy, fast Mac computer, you can, on your CCS cases, you could just order everything and be super, super fast. And I learned this kind of the hard way on my exam when there's a lag on the actual computers at the test center and I was not able to order all the things that I wanted to order. So I think that CCS actually gives you the option to lag the cases. And if you have that option, do it um, and be mindful of the number of tests that you're ordering. Um, maintain a differential when you go through the cases. Sometimes the cases will have multiple differentials. So be mindful of it. What I used to like to do is I would use my scratch paper and just jot down my differentials and things that I knew were important to order before I got to the order page. Um, because then once you get to the order, you can forget little things uh, that are important. And especially when you're reading through the history, if you see something like, oh, this patient's a smoker, I'm gonna have to counsel them at the very end. I'll write smoke in the corner so that I don't have to go back and reread the case at the end. Uh, develop an overall feel for how sick the patient is. That's really important because you have to determine whether you're gonna place this person or your patient into um, an ICU setting, leave them in the emergency room, put them in inpatient or send them home. So it's really important to see, are they stable? Um, and then that also dictates what kind of orders you're gonna have to do. Are you gonna have to look at um, the O2 SATs? Are you gonna have to start an IV? Are you gonna have to send them to surgery immediately? Uh, so that's very important. If considering a surgery, make sure that they're going to be NPO and you're going to get pre-op orders. Um, for females, you always have to get pregnancy tests. So you'll kind of learn that as you go through the CCS cases. And then, of course, we have to counsel. That's very important. Those are very easy uh, points that you can get. And that's at the very end when you have the two-minute remaining warning. I think as we go through the cases, the, these kinds of tips are going to become a little bit more apparent about how to apply them. Um, and so just to, to talk a little bit more about the, the simulator, um, I, I think the biggest benefit of this is that it really helps you, the, the scoring, grading, and feedback that they give you at the end of these cases um, is not something that you really get in any other resource. And the advantage then is that you can clearly see, like, here are the things that I did right, here are the things that I might not have done right. Because so much of it, sometimes you'll place orders or you'll do certain actions that will not affect your score in any way. Sometimes you may do things in the wrong order that might cause them to dock a little bit, but uh, without having the objectivity of, of, of actual computer grading your actions, then it's hard to know precisely how you did overall. And so I think that that's one of the benefits. And also it's just, um, it's just a, a, a more volume of cases that you can practice. I think we've had a couple of questions periodically come in through the chat about how to divide up the time between the UWorld cases and the CCS cases. And, and just to state that here, um, if you're able to do both of them, I mean, that's ideal. I think the more practice, the better. Um, and so, you know, it, it's not, the, the cases don't truthfully take, it may seem a little bit daunting to do upwards of 150 interactive cases. They don't truthfully take that long to do. 
um, they can take anywhere from, from 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish of answering, reading through everything. And so it's very realistic to be able to do one, two, three, upwards of four or five a day. And if you space that over enough time, then you'd easily be able to, to get through all of these. Um, you can try out two cases of the CCS cases ahead of time and see what you think. And, and uh, overall, it's a, a very good and, and great ancillary resource to help you kind of supplement what the UWorld offers. And so with that, we can dive right in and start off with a practice case. I'll turn it back over to Annette. Okay, so our first case, uh, we're just going to briefly touch this case and then uh, Mike is going to dive into a good one. So a 23-year-old female presents with right lower quadrant pain. So right away, just there, we should have some differentials. So feel free, start typing out those differentials. Um, so the pain started three hours ago. It began in her umbilicus. It migrated to her right lower quadrant. It's associated with nausea, vomiting, and chills. She has no significant past medical history aside from smoking. Okay, appendicitis, pregnancy, ectopic pregnancy specifically, great. Ruptured fallopian tubes, amazing. Over ovarian cysts, it could be torsion. Oh, yep, there's a torsion. Good job, guys. Perfect. Awesome. So right away, you have to be thinking of these differentials because that's going to dictate what you're going to want to order. What's another thing that's important here that you want to remember for the very end when you have two minutes left? What are you going to definitely need to do to get those freebie points? Counseling. Yes. So this at this point, I would put smoke at the top of my paper so I remember to counsel at the end. Okay. So, and this is a pretty straightforward case, would you not say? I mean, like appendicitis. We should all know how to be able to diagnose appendicitis in an emergency room. So it's straightforward, but you can get nervous and it's easy to get nervous even with the easy cases. But at the same time, it's like, yes, it can be this straightforward. It actually is meant to, a lot of these cases are not meant to trick you. They, they're meant to see how what you're going to do as a physician and make sure that you're competent to manage patients in an emergency room setting or an outpatient urgent care type setting. Okay, so based on this alone, what kind of orders would you get? Well, actually, let's start. Before you order, you always have to do a physical exam, right? So if this is an appendicitis, we probably are thinking this person needs to go to the OR, so are you going to want to do a full thorough exam from head to toe? Or are you going to want to do more of a focused exam? Focus, exactly. You don't want to spend time like doing things that aren't necessary. If this patient is in a lot of pain and we need to start prepping and figuring out if this is appendicitis, because we're going to have to take this patient to the OR and the more time, the more likely we can develop some kind of ruptured appendicitis, right? Okay, good. So give me orders. CBC, CMP, pregnancy test, coax, type across. Beautiful. BMP, CBC, LFTs. Yes. Yes. Urine pregnancy, IV access. Good. Okay. Awesome. So would you do a, C a CT or would you do um, an ultrasound? An ultrasound. And why would you probably go for an ultrasound before you go for a CT scan? less invasive and because she might be pregnant, less radiation and then faster too. Cause usually you have um, like an ultrasound machine in the ER, you don't have to like take them. Like you can just do a rapid really quick at bedside and figure it out. 
Perfect. Beautiful. You guys are just doing amazing. And yes, anytime you have a female, you always do want, want to do a urine pregnancy because right away, if she is not pregnant, we already ruled out ectopic and now we're ready to go for like the appendicitis and the ultrasound will let you know if you have appendicitis. So good job. Look at this. You guys got all of it. Amazing. Okay. And so we want to do focus. So we want to do heart, lungs, abdomen, and then we want to get our labs. And then another thing that we didn't mention in the standard labs is what kind of symptoms does she complain about? Like vomiting. Okay. So what do you want to do? Zofran. Yes. So if a patient is vomiting, you need to give them Zofran. If a patient's in pain, you have to treat their pain. So what would you do to treat this pain? Would you give them an oral medication like Tylenol? Would you give them an oral Tylenol if they're nauseous? Morphine, awesome. So you wanna give them IV. Um, IV and, and not PO because they're vomiting. I guess if you give them Zofran, then maybe they're not gonna throw it up, but just to be safe, I would say the better choice is IV morphine. Okay, so would you remember to make them MPO? Would you remember to consult the team? You have to make a consult too. So you can actually put in consult surgery team. Um, and that's what you want to do. Order IV access, pain medication, antibiotics. That's a good one too, depending on like, if we know for sure that this is appendicitis, then we might want to start an antibiotic, transfer them. Would you transfer them from emergency room to the inpatient unit? And then finally, would you counsel the patient? So you very, very important counseling. Always, always want to counsel. Is it wrong to put Tylenol IV? Technically you could, IV Tylenol would be fine. I don't think they would mark you off um, as long as you manage their pain, but I would say it's always safer to do IV if they're nauseous. I don't know, what would you say? I Yeah, I think that's fine. I think, um, I think your point about making sure that it's IV instead of PO is the most important thing. Um, but um, you guys are on it. I'm really impressed. I feel like everyone is doing a phenomenal job of, thank you for interacting, first of all, but also you guys are getting everything. So this is phenomenal. Um, all right. And so, um, and so let's try this again. Uh, we'll, we'll shift gears and do another case. Um, start off with a 65-year-old white man is brought to the emergency department because of sharp chest pain and respiratory distress. He is in acute distress, moaning and holding his hands over the right side of his chest. So we'll do the same thing again. Um, we'll, if you guys have any ideas about things that you think about for this, um, great. So I see, I see pneumothorax, I see MI, I see PE, great dissection, GERD, I love it. Um, COPD, um, phenomenal. And, and just to state that this is, comes from the, directly comes from the USMLE practice resources. So this is straight from the test writers themselves. Um, and so we'll, we'll advance and we're given some initial vital signs. And so things that stand out to you guys here um, that are maybe a little bit abnormal and then, and then just kind of to our earlier point about sick or not sick, what do you guys think? Is, is this person well or not well? Right, great, hypotensive, not well. He's has a high respiratory rate, he's tachycardic. Breathing at 34 per minute is, is really breathing. I mean, if you try to do that, I don't, don't, but if you tried, it would be, it would be fast. Uh, and then also 90 over 60 is, is low. I, that's really the threshold of, of their way of communicating that this patient is borderline becoming too hypotensive. 
And so, right, shock, exactly. You guys are so on it, I love it. Um, all right, so we'll, we'll get the initial history. It's a little bit um, abbreviated because the patient is in respiratory distress, but so we have chest pain, respiratory distress. He's a 65 year old accountant. He's brought by ambulance from the trucking company where he works about 10 minutes before he arrived, he developed excruciating sharp pain in the right side of his chest and marked respiratory distress. So it's very acute, very sudden onset. He can actually pinpoint this precise moment in time where it suddenly came on. Uh, he rates the pain as an eight on a 10 point scale. It increases with respiration. Does anyone know what that's called when you have chest pain that worsens with respiration? There's a technical term for that. Pleuritic, exactly, pleuritic, perfect. Um, he is unable to answer questions. A coworker who accompanied the patient to the hospital said that this has never happened before, but the patient has had emphysema and asthma for years. And then oxygen was administered during transport. So great. I love the way, I love the way you guys are thinking about this. You're, you're already kind of honing your differential. Is this one thing? Is this another thing? Um, and so I see a lot of people are, are between, it looks like pneumothorax and PE. So that's great. Um, so we'll keep plugging along. So I went ahead for you guys and, and started plugging in the, um, the physical examination things. And, you know, again, there's, it's a little bit stylistic about all of the specific ones, but the key thing is that you don't necessarily need to do a thorough breast exam for this patient or, um, or other full, like more of a focused exam that you want to make sure you cover the salient points of cardiovascular, um, chest lung examination, uh, general appearance. Those are the things that you have to have are most important. And so there's a lot of words on this slide and I'm not gonna read through all of them, but I see some people dropping in the chat, which is phenomenal. The, the key thing that this really, this case is gonna turn on. And so I'm gonna give you guys just a couple of seconds to read through this. This is a prime example of where you have to be careful. You want to be, you want to take your time in reading through this because there's a lot of normal things on this, you know, no abnormal lymph nodes, normocephalic, neck supple. Like there's a, you can miss the key pertinent positives and pertinent negatives if you get lost in the amount of text. And so I think a lot of people are honing in on the key thing. You have um, the, the pulmonary examination is showing um, hyperresonance to percussion on the right with no breath sounds. And then, great. So what do you guys think that that is kind of a buzzword or a buzz phrase for? Great, a pneumo, exactly, a pneumothorax. And then we also have jugular venous distension. Um, and in the context, remember that he was hypotensive. So all of that is, um, is a little bit concerning. And then in the HENT, again, there's a lot, of, a lot of normal here, but slight tracheal deviation to the left. So we're already talking about having a pneumothorax on the right. And then when you have that kind of filling up that space, what can happen is you can end up having mediastinal shift where the trachea then moves to the other side. And that leads to what great everyone's saying in the chat, tension physiology. So, so we, we kind of have the diagnosis now. And that's the beauty of it. Again, like, like Annette mentioned on the previous case, it's not really intended to cloud the diagnosis. They want you to, you know, they're going to give you a lot of the buzzwords that you expect but you need to be able to, um, that what they're more interested in is your management of the patient and what the next steps will be. So um, with that, what do you guys wanna do next? What are some of the next steps in management for attention and with things you wanna order? Needle thoracostomy, great. 
great. And the second intercostal, yes, I, when I was on, when I was a medical student on surgery, they just drove it into our head so much needle thoracostomy in the right second intercostal in, in the, on the side and the right second intercostal space in the mid clavicular line. And that's going to be your definitive treatment for this. And so the first thing I would do kind of highlighted right here is that needle thoracostomy. You know, I thrown on a couple of other things on here as well that you can get in the interim. And, and I'm, I'm sometimes of the habit, like while I'm doing the physical exam, I like to throw on a couple of things right at the, at the get-go, because when you start ordering, you don't elapse real time. It's like time is frozen in that moment. So you can throw on a couple of orders. This case started at four o'clock. And so right at four o'clock, I can put in my pulse ox and my EKG. And then while I'm doing the physical exam, the 10 minutes that elapses that in, in computer time that it takes for that to happen, these things are already cooking. And so that's just a little trick to kind of get, get things moving a little bit faster. And so he has um, a pulse ox of 89%. And left axis deviation. You can't see those on here because they've already resulted. But here are some other things I also threw on here. And then, um, and then the key thing though that I want to drive home is that needle thoracostomy. When you're dealing with a tension pneumothorax, you really should never. In a perfect world, you would never know what a tension pneumo looks like on a chest X-ray. In, in reality, it's so easy to get one that we do it even beforehand, but the, um, the actual next step is really to stick the needle in and see what happens and to, to, to basically deflate it. Uh, and so, um, and so when, once you do that, I, the actual slide doesn't come up here, but it basically tells you that you have a big whoosh of air and the patient immediately starts to feel better. Their pain is gone from an eight to a four and their vitals are starting to improve. The needle thoracostomy for your guys' learning is not the definitive management for this because you can still just reaccumulate that air. You have a one-way valve basically, and you're having more air coming into the pleural space. And so what you really need is you need to also do an, a tube thoracostomy, exactly, perfect chest tube. Um, and so I, I threw on here because in the real world, I, I, I would not be the one in the ED placing a chest tube. It would generally be um, thoracic surgery, but, uh, but you would place a chest tube. And then the most important thing is that you need to um, obtain a chest x-ray after the chest tube has been placed to make sure it's in the right location. If you follow those steps, it'll close out the case. And this is a great example from start to finish. You can finish this in, in less than, you know, in less than two to three minutes by doing the needle thoracostomy, placing the chest tube, and then checking a chest x-ray. It actually is all that you need to close this out. And that's, um, and then if you go through the explanation that they give at the end, that's really what they're looking for. That kind of, that series of steps that you do. Uh, if you're, if you're putting in other orders like the labs and things like that, that's fine. But the key thing is do not delay the needle thoracostomy by getting things like pulmonary function tests or a CT scan that's going to leave the patient hemodynamically unstable, intensely uncomfortable. It could potentially be life-threatening. And so to that, and then you want to, the, the key things they're looking for when they're grading this are making sure that you do those things up front. Um, like we talked about before, counseling is going to be super important. As you're going through this case, you'll notice in the text that they give you that he is a smoker. It's not in the ones that I sent to, that, that you guys were able to see. But again, this is a perfect example. When you see smoking, write that down and make sure you address it at the end. Perfect. Everyone, you guys are so on it. Everyone's hitting all of these points. And then, um, and then just a, a couple of learning points for this is kind of like we talked about. Be, take your time reading through the weeds a little bit to find the important pertinent positives. 
do not delay care, and then expedite treatment. Um, and that, anything else you would add for this case or other things that you think about for maximizing your score? I think you did a great job. The only thing I would stress is that there were heart findings too. So I like how you threw in the BMP and the troponins mm-hmm. um, because the differential is why, even though you're really confident that it's pneumothorax, it doesn't hurt to just get those tests just in case you're not right. Because sometimes it does happen where the main diagnosis that you, or differential you had isn't the right one and it's actually the second one. So if you start thinking ahead and planning ahead and getting a couple extra labs, um, that way you, you'll like kind of um, cover all your corners and get to the diagnosis quicker rather than um, delayed. Perfect. Yep. hundred percent. I think, I think when you first, you guys were great when you first saw this to kind of think through a differential and that's exactly just like in that said, make sure you're, you're still, you don't want to necessarily anchor because then what can end up happening is that, you know, you find out that your diagnosis may not be correct and you have to regroup. Um, perfect. All right. Uh, and that just, you want to wrap up with a couple of uh, pointers in general for the cases. Sure. So the first um, point is saying that manage the condition the way that you should manage it based on the USMLE. So every hospital does things differently. Um, Mike, I thought you gave a really good example of the chest X-ray. So at our hospital, we'd probably go for the chest X-ray before we did the needle. Um, But the best way to manage it is to recognize it on physical exam and do the uh, needle right away so that you're not delaying treatment. So technically getting a chest X-ray is delaying treatment. You have to take them over to the x-ray room, you have to get the results back, and that delays time. So do what you know is the best management um, based on what the USMLE would test you on, not necessarily what you would do at your hospital. We already stressed number two uh, many times, do every practice case and do every practice test. Um, So, and do all the URL questions. So do as much as you can. if you know you have this many questions, this many cases, just schedule your time appropriately, um, but make it your goal to at least get through everything. I don't think you have to get through everything twice, which is what we all love to do for the step one. For step three, you don't necessarily have to, but at least try to get through everything once. And then the better you do on easier cases, the more points you obtain. Um, so then when you do get a difficult case, which does happen, usually we all get at least one challenging case where we don't really know what was happening. I like to think that it was probably an experimental case, Um, but be comfortable with all the cases. That way, if you do have a challenging one, you know you did well on the the easier cases and that you kind of have a little bit of um, space to mess up one or two. And then considering spacing out the first portion of your exam. So we definitely talked about this too. Uh, Give yourself a few days between the first exam and the second exam. Uh, You'll be happy you did. Perfect. And then just to kind of wrap up or highlight some general tips of things to avoid is make sure you do. I mean, the, the, the U world may seem daunting because you're diving into yet another round of a Q bank after having done this so many other times for step one and step two, but it, it is shorter. It's, you can do it 1600 questions and, and it's really important to at least try to make one pass through it. Um, as with anything, you have to be realistic. You have to be honest with yourself. You know, if you're, putting in 14 hour days in an ICU, or, you know, if you're, it's just not going to be possible to do 
100, 200 questions a day during that kind of schedule. And I know a lot of you guys are taking it before you start residency. And, and but I think the same thing still applies. You know, if you have a, a, a stack schedule, if you're working in some context, and if you're trying to do 300 questions a day, like all of these kinds of things are not going to be necessarily sustainable. So just again, be honest with yourself. Um, don't, don't always, sometimes the test writers can get a little bit tricky and find ways to con, you know, confuse things that might've otherwise been straightforward, but generally don't overthink the cases. They're not intended to be, they're not intended to be trick questions. Um, and so you saw for that tension pneumothorax, like they really drove home a lot of the key findings, the tracheal deviation, the hyperresonance, the absent breath sounds. Like these are all kind of buzzwords for attention pneumo. And that's that's what you can kind of expect on this exam. Um, again, I cannot highlight it enough. You have to know, you have to know biostats and ethics. You, I honestly, I don't normally make blanket states, statements like this, but it's really challenging to excel on this test if you do not have a good level of comfort with the biostats. And so it's very, very important. As for ethics, um, someone brought up a, a good question about preparing for those. And Truthfully, practice is going to make perfect. There are some things that you can memorize in terms of care for minors or who is an emancipated minor, what kinds of information are protected, um, like psychiatric diagnoses, substance use, HIV diagnoses. Memorizing those kinds of things are ways that you can prepare for the ethics. And then, um, and then the last point is something that I talk about with students very often. Um, for any of these tests, step one through step three, if you're going to push your test back, you need to you need to have a clear plan of the time that you would what you would be doing with the new time that you have, and and the reason why is because and I'm guilty of this too. Some these are very anxiety kind of inducing things. They're they're daunting. They come with a lot of stakes. We openly acknowledge that and 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 don't want to dismiss that. But also you can't let that get the better of you and, and cause you to prolong your study period far longer than it needs to be. And so, um, and so if you, if you feel like you're just not able because of your schedule, because of the timeline you're on to do all of the questions or to get through what you need to, then it's fine to move your test, but you need to have a reason. Um, all right. And so with that, and then I'll turn it back over to you. We can talk a little bit more about MST. Okay, so we'll just briefly touch base, um, talk about MSD. That's why we're here. MSD brought us together. We love MSD. <laughs> I could literally sit here and talk about MSD for hours because um, I'm kind of obsessed with them, which is why I've been with them <laughs> since 2017. Um, but basically what I love about MSD is that it is one-on-one -on -one tutoring and it's catered to you. So whatever you need, MST is there for you whether that's a tutor to be there with you multiple times a week to go through questions, um, go through cases, whatever, or even just a one-time planning session just to sit down with you, figure out, okay, this is what is the best game plan for you. Uh, so we cater to our students. Um, we have, we basically cater a study schedule for you, specifically for you based on your strengths, based on your weaknesses, based on your needs. Um, and they match you with a tutor that's gonna be suitable for you. You have good communication uh, with your tutor, but also the administrative and the staff, they're amazing. So if you, if there's anything that you're looking for specifically, you can always give us a call, we're here for you. From there, 
we could jump into our Q&A. I know there's been lots and lots of questions. How much depth does one need to read by step one first aid? Uh, So the step one is the basics. So doing well in step one, knowing your step one material is important. I personally am love, love, love the first aid book for step one. And I actually did use that for studying for step three. I just really like it. And I think it's very pertinent, but you don't have to go into super depth, like depth, like biochemistry wise. Um, it's more like basic diagnosis um, and then taking it one step further and being able to manage the patients. I, yeah. And I, I find that the reality on any of these things is that there are a billion and one things that they could test you on. And your priority isn't, it can't be to try to memorize all 1 billion and one. The reality is that there's going to be, I, I don't know, 5,001 things that they commonly test you on. And that is a much more attainable goal. That's going to get you the 90% of the, capture 90% of the questions you might see on test day. Should you be memorizing the, the glycolytic, the glycolysis for step three? Well, you could potentially get a question on glycolysis. Are you likely though? Probably not. Would your time be better served memorizing biostats? 100% yes. And so, you know, it's not possible necessarily to sit here and say that you won't get tested on basic biochemistry, but, um, but you, you just need to have, again, you need to be honest with yourself about what's realistic to try to prepare and, and going back and memorizing the nuances of how you turn galacta, I don't know, galactose one phosphate something, galactosemia, I don't, I'm rambling now. Um, Let's see. Yeah, if you do get one of those U-roll questions, then go over it. But if you're not getting any U-roll questions on it, then I wouldn't stress too much. Exactly. Um, All right. There are a lot of people brought up great questions about how well residency prepares you for this test, the timing and when to take it. If you're taking it beforehand, could that potentially come at a disadvantage? And and that I don't know if you have, I I can tell you, so I took it right at the beginning of intern year. I had actually not taken care of a patient because I started on a research elective that I follow directly into taking it. Um, it sounds like you had more experience. Do you feel like that helped you? Yeah, and I remember taking it and, or when I was studying for it, I was thinking, wow, if I was in an internal medicine residency, I feel like I would just crush this exam because there is a lot of, um, like a lot of management stuff that you don't even realize how much you know until you've been in that experience and then it's second nature. And it doesn't mean you can't do well on this exam without, um, going through residency, I just think that there's pros and cons to both. So I think the advantage of residency is that you're more comfortable with management. You don't really think twice about management, but the con is you're limited with time and studying. And then the opposite is true for if you're taking it before, you might have more time, but may- you won't be as comfortable managing. So you might have to study and do more questions than you would if you were in residency. And I, I think just to, from the perspective of not necessarily having very much clinical training, I think you absolutely can do it. Um, but just like Annette said, you might have to take a little bit. And if your schedule affords them, great, but just take a little bit more time to prepare. Mm-hmm. And then book recommendations. So this one's tricky. I personally don't really think there are great resources out there and book resources out there. 
I mean, I've tried Kaplan, I've tried a few of them, but I don't think they're thorough. I still, like I already said, I just love first aid for step one. I just think it just does such a good job being thorough. I have that PDF on when I would study for step three, I'd have the PDF on my laptop and then I just search it really quick. And I think it does a great job highlighting the important diagnostic findings of each disease. So I would just focus on the high yield diseases. I wouldn't read through all the first aid. I wouldn't just sit there and spend hours, just whatever, going through a chapter. I would use it as a supplement to my world by a quick PDF search, read it briefly, really quick, and then move on. And I agree hundred percent. I find that the first aid series, um, it just, first aid for step one is just so phenomenal. And then I, I, you don't necessarily get quite as much of the extent or the the utility, I think with the subsequent ones. Um, I'm just such a big, I'm, I'm, I, I'm always, am a broken record when it comes to questions, but the more you can do the better. And it's a little bit of a controversial point, largely because most people don't have the time to build it into their schedule. But if you have, and if you're if you're planning on devoting an extended study period to step three, and you're very far removed from your medical education so that you feel less comfortable with maybe more basic step two kind of management things, again, only in the scenario where it's realistic for your timeline, you can try to build in some step two world as well. Because really the truth is what you'll find is day two is very much step two style multiple choice. And a lot of that step two U world is still very applicable and in play. It's not, that doesn't mean that step three is basically a carbon copy of step two, but very much the contrary in many ways, but there is a lot of overlap in terms of those aspects. And so if you're able to do a little bit of the um, step two U world, more power to you, not, uh, not a necessity by any means, and not something that I uniformly recommend to all the students I work with. Somebody said, is there an advantage to doing UWorld once prior to residency and redoing it during residency and then doing a practice test? I mean, if you have the time and the resources to do that, it wouldn't hurt. But I would say it would probably be more useful if you're going to be taking it kind of like Michael did, where it was maybe like a month or two after you start versus a whole year later. Um, So I personally, since I took mine in the beginning of second year, if I had done UWorld prior to residency, by the time I ended up studying for the step three, it might have not been useful. So I think that kind of depends on what your specific um, situation is. But if you are like Mike and you were going to have a research block and you're going to take it, then yeah, it would be beneficial to do something like that. And then someone mentioned memorying flashcards. Have you ever used memory? I, I truthfully have not. I do not have as much experience with them. I have a huge um, inclination towards Anki cards because I use that during step one. So I, I'm the kind of person where once I have a resource that I love, it's really hard for me to break away from that resource. Hence why I like still use my first aid book to this day. Um, and I still use my sketchy farm and sketchy micro um, stuff during residency as well. Um, but I love Anki cards. And I think that flashcards are beneficial. I personally believe in making your own flashcards. So I like how Anki has the ability to, you can kind of just write a flashcard um, yourself and then study it later. And you could put whatever you want, you could put pictures, et cetera. So what I always did 
when I was studying, and I always recommended this to students as well, is to make one flashcard per URL question as you go through that kind of summarizes that URL question. And then I would study it later. Um, and I did that for step one, two, and three. So if you do like uh, flashcards, that's something to consider, but you absolutely don't have to do that either to do well. And I just want to jump on board and second that when Annette said about picking out one point and sticking it on a flashcard. I think that's, I almost uniformly recommend that approach to the U world for many of the students I work with. And if you don't love flashcards, that's okay. But but that specifically that point of maintaining a good pace through the questions by not perseverating on the explanations, by picking out one fact, I didn't know this before, I'm going to try to learn it now, put it on a flashcard or, or a OneNote file or an Evernote file, a Google Doc, whatever you want it to be, but but keeping track of that stuff. And then also preventing you from making 20 flashcards on one question, which is time consuming and chances are you're not going to be able to go through that many flashcards. Um, How many drug ads? Isn't it about one or two per block? Pretty much. And then it, go back to what you said about biostats. They love throwing in biostats into the drug ads. So you can actually, I thought, I personally thought drug ads were challenging um, and kind of scary to me. They were like my out of my comfort zone. So I would always save them for the very end. But knowing your biostats really well will help you get a lot of your drug ad questions. Because a lot of the times it's just like uh, you look at the, the graphs and the data and you can tell uh, which one is significant and which one isn't. And you can get that question right then and there just by knowing your biostats. Um, and I think that's such a great point that you bring up of saving those for the end because they can be time consuming. It's such a big chunk of text. And, and they, they do stack two to three questions for that entire chunk of text. And we'll dial back the number of questions in the block to account for that. But, um, but it's, it's good to it, just to avoid the situation of running out of time. Um, Thank you for the win. How should I solve the question, study mode or exam mode? So a lot of people debate this. I always say in the beginning, the tutor mode is great because you're kind of learning the material. But when you get start getting closer to the exam, then you want to do more randomized, more timed, more 40 question blocks instead of like scattered 15, 20, 10, whatever you have time for just to get you in the study mode. But in the beginning, when you still have a couple months or a couple weeks and you wanna do more learning, um, then doing the tutor mode is good or even specific, like subject specific. And then how did you feel about the practice test? Did you feel like they were predictive? Actually, yes. Um, I think UWorld self-assessment two was very close to what I ended up getting on the step three. And I don't remember how many points it was, but I remember for almost all my step exams, it was always UWorld um, yeah. self-assessment like <laughs> self two. And it's always the second, yeah, it's always the second it's always one. always the second one, I swear. Yeah, that's very, I, I agree 100%. Um, and, and I think I took one of the NBMEs too that they offered, mm -hmm. but that one doesn't actually at least when I took step three back in July, it didn't give you a score. Yeah. I was kind of bummed about, it was still good to take the practice test and learn and, you know, review it and stuff. But I was bummed that it didn't give me a score. And that, that is one of the frustrating things about the, um, about step three is there's just not as many for step one, you have so many NBMEs and so many practice tests. And for step three, the reality is you just don't quite have as many. 
Um, if you have anything else that you want to specifically have uh, answers to, feel free to drop us an email, um, hq at medschooltutors.com. Our phone number's below. Of course, our website, we have a lot of great blog posts and details that, that perhaps can um, address the answer. And then, um, and then, yeah, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. We hope this was helpful and that it took some of the guesswork out of the equation for you. If you have any questions or would like one-on-one tutoring, get in touch with us via our website, medschooltutors.com, via email at hq at medschooltutors.com, or give us a call, if you're old school like that, at 212-327-0098. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, share, and review us on your podcast app. And if you want more helpful, free information, visit our blog, check us out on social media at medschooltutors, or visit our forum at usmletutors.com. Thanks for listening. Be well.